Well, good morning, Hellas Church and guests who are tuning in this morning. We're in the middle of a series titled Strangers and Exiles, Sinners of a Different, Sto- Sinners of a Different Sort. We're studying the New Testament letter called, titled First Peter. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to First Peter chapter 3. Now, part of the design of this series is to clarify our self-understanding as the church. We are asking questions like, who are we to be in the midst of the madness that it surrounds us in the world that is? We're asking the question like, what, what's the difference between who we are as gospel-believing men and women and, and those who aren't believing the gospel? What difference is Jesus making in our lives and in our community? And what we are finding is that there's freedom in knowing that the world as it is now isn't our home. There's freedom in knowing that our faith in Jesus grants us a citizenship in heaven so that this world ceases to be the place where we belong, for we now belong to another world. And so we are now living and loving and serving in light of the world that is to come. We are moving in that direction. And as we have seen, this doesn't mean that we say forget the world and all that is in it. We don't turn our backs upon the needs of the world around us. What this means is is that we now have an incredible purpose, an incredible passion to give this world a taste of that world, to give this world flashes of heaven on earth by living heaven, heaven down, not earth up. Jesus taught us to pray this way. He said, when you pray, pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And as we pray that prayer, we move in that direction. We align our lives up with heaven's priorities, with heaven's passions, with heaven's purposes. And we live our lives now in such a way that gives those around us tastes of the world that is to come. And as we do that, that means that as we journey through the world, we're going to appear to be strange. (laughs) We're going to take on the identity of being strangers and exiles. We do life differently. We, do, we work differently. We play differently. We love differently. We serve differently. We engage in marriage differently. Now, this doesn't mean that we cease to be sinners. We, we are still sinners, but we are sinners of a different sort. We are sinners saved by grace. We are sinners being transformed by grace. And we are discovering more and more the difference Jesus makes in all of life. And as we grow and as we mature, We are displaying that difference more clearly to the watching world around us. Now, over the past couple of weeks, we've looked at passages where the Apostle Peter has pressed the difference Jesus makes upon how Christians relate to being unjustly treated, whether that treatment comes from the government or that treatment comes from an earthly master or boss or ruler. He's impressing upon them the difference Jesus makes and how they are to respond and to react in those instances. And if you recall from last week, Pastor Mark gave us the image of of a child learning to write and how they are giving a page with the faint outline of letters and words on it. And a child will then take a pen or a pencil and, and begin to trace the faint outline on the page. And eventually, letters and words become more apparent. They become more visible to others. Well, the way Peter would instruct the church and the way And the example that Jesus set before us, the way Jesus responded to unjust treatment, it set a faint outline on the page for our lives to trace. And as we do so, the gospel becomes more apparent on the page. As we do so, the gospel 
is then commended to those who are beginning, beginning to see it and to sense it and are drawn to it as a result of the lives that we are living before them. If you look back at the end of chapter 2, Peter reminds us of this example that Jesus set. You look at verse 21 of chapter 2. He says, For you were called to this, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. That is, he put a faint pattern on the page that you should follow in his steps. That is, a faint pattern that you should now trace. Jesus did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that, having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls." I want you to note two things about the pattern Jesus set for us to trace. One, Jesus did not allow the sin of others to generate sin in him. Had he done that, he would not have been the spotless, unblemished lamb. And his death on the cross would have done nothing for us. So Jesus set this example. I'm not going to allow the sin of others to generate sin in me. But then the second thing he does in this text is that Jesus trusted his father in the face of injustice. We are told that he, when he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. That he trusted his father in the face of injustice, and he calls his disciples to trace that same pattern. So when Peter sees the soldier coming into the garden to arrest Jesus, and to take him to a trial where he would be sentenced to crucifixion. He grabbed a sword and he cut the ear of a soldier, the, a soldier's ear off his head. And then Jesus stopped him and he said, Peter, this isn't our way. This isn't how we do things. And then he asked Peter the question, am I not to drink the cup the Father has given me? Am I not to trust the Father in the face of injustice, even if it means I must die? You see, Jesus was teaching Peter in that moment not to fight fire with fire, not to meet injustice with more injustice, for he knew that the wounds of the world would never be healed that way. And so Jesus submitted himself to the will of his Father and sought our good at great cost to himself. He went to the cross so that our sins may be forgiven, our lives may be saved, our inheritance may be secured. And it's in light of Jesus' example that Peter now turns the corner in chapter 3 and he begins to talk to another social unit. He begins to talk to another context in which Christians are to live out the difference Jesus makes, in which Christians are to be strangers and exiles, sinners of a different sort, and that is the context of marriage. And in chapter 3, he begins to talk to wives and husbands. The connection is drawn immediately in verse 1. It's drawn with a phrase, in the same way. He say, in the same way that Jesus changes how we relate to government, in the same way that Jesus changes how we relate to uh, masters and rulers who are treating us poorly, in the same way, Jesus changes how we relate to one another in marriage. He changes our approach to that relationship. And this is true. When a marriage consists of two people who both love Jesus, both are believing the gospel, 
But it's also true for the, for the Christian, for the Christian wife, for the Christian husband who isn't married to someone who loves Jesus, who isn't married to someone who believes the gospel. In fact, that scenario is probably the one that's most common to the situation Peter's people were facing in the first century. But the bottom line of the text, the bottom line for any Christian married person, any gospel-believing wife or husband, the bottom line is this. As a married gospel-believing person, you are to commend the gospel to your spouse. You should relate to them in such a way that commends the gospel to them. Now, I like receiving recommendations. I like it when people recommend books for me to read, bands for me to listen to. I like it when people recommend movies for me to watch or TV shows. I especially like it when people recommend restaurants. And when they recommend restaurants, they tell me what I should eat at that restaurant. I love recommendations like that. Well, recently, my wife and I were recommended to go to a place called Frankie and Joe's. Frankie and Joe's is an ice cream parlor in our city that that makes plant-based ice cream. Now, when I first learned that, I wasn't too excited about that. Uh, dairy ice cream is what I'm used to. That's what I'm familiar with. That's what I go after. And now I'm being asked to go try this plant-based ice cream. Now, my wife appreciates dairy-free ice cream. And so I decided to go with her and, and we went and we got our ice cream. I got a scoop of Jamocha Chaga fudge. And, and when I tasted it, when I took that first bite and the taste entered my mouth, it, it was incredible. Not only did it taste familiar to dairy ice cream that I've had in the past, in some ways it was superior to what I had had in the past. And I was so grateful in that moment to have received that commendation, to have been been recommended this place despite my initial resistance to it. Well, I want you to know, as a married Christian, you are called to commend the gospel to your spouse. That the way you relate to your wife or the way you relate to your husband is to give them the opportunity to taste and see that Jesus is good over and over and over again. Even when they don't deserve it, even when they are initially resistant to it. That's the bottom line of this passage, and that's what we want to learn to do by looking at it. And Peter begins in the text by addressing wives. Now, him naming wives and speaking to them directly, the significance of that cannot be overstated. In Greco-Roman society, it was the prerogative of the husband to teach and to instruct and to address their wives. Greek moral philosophers did not address wives like this. Yet in the church, God's word addresses wives directly, just as it addresses all women directly. For wives and women are a part of God's new covenant community. They are equal members in the royal priesthood that Peter described earlier in chapter 2. Their relationship with God is not to be mediated by any man other than Jesus, and that includes the husband. So wives can talk to God directly through Jesus. Wives can hear from God directly through Jesus. And so this direct address was a dignifying act. It was an act that subverted cultural norms and social expectations when Peter does this. But that's what the gospel does. The gospel creates a new society, a new community, a new family of faith that does things differently. He then identifies three ways. Three ways believing wives can commend the gospel to their husbands. 
whether their husbands are believers or not. This is how wives can commend the gospel to them. First, they are to do so through Christ-like willful submission. Christ-like willful submission. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. Now, culturally, I know that we have a hard time with that word submit. But I want us to be sober-minded at this point. I want us to be sober-minded, not drunken-minded. Don't allow the baggage that has built up around this word in our society or even in your own experience, don't let that baggage prevent you from seeing its gospel-commending beauty. Because all throughout Scripture, the language of submission is applied to every single Christian. The Christian life is a submitted life. It is a submissive life. I'll just give you a few examples. James chapter 4, verse 7, all Christians are called to submit ourselves to God. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, Christians are called to obey your leaders and submit to them since they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Romans chapter 13, verse 1, let everyone submit to the governing authorities since there is no authority except from God and the authorities that exist are instituted by God. Ephesians 5, 21, we are called all Christians in the church to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then earlier in chapter 2, verse 13 of 1 Peter, chapter 2, verse 16, chapter 2, verse 18, we are told to submit in different ways. Different people, different Christians are told to submit in different kinds of ways. Now, the reason the language of submission is so pervasive in the New Testament is because it was so central to the life and ministry of Jesus. Jesus submitted himself to his Father's will in every instant. And such submission led him to the cross where he willfully gave his life for us. He did so to serve us, to save us, commending the gospel to us. So if Jesus lived a life of submission, we should never balk. We should never balk when we are called to do so as well. So we want to be sober-minded and seek to understand what it means to be submissive, specifically here, what it means for wives to submit themselves to their husbands. Now, to do that, I want to just clarify what it doesn't mean because that can be helpful. One, submission does not mean that wives should suppress their wills, wants, interests, and gifts to simply serve their husbands. Wives should know that your ideas, your perspectives, your gifts, they all matter to your marriage. And the reason God has brought you into that proximity with your husband is because he needs your gifts, your perspective, your thoughts. He needs your ideas and your opinions. He needs you. And so we keep that in mind because you are are his God-given partner. And, And so any husband that doesn't take into consideration their wives' needs, desires, wants, opinions, perspectives on, on matters pertaining to life. That husband is acting more like a fool and less like the wise person he is to be in relationship with Christ. And then secondly, submission does not mean that wives allow their husbands to do anything he wants to do. It does not mean that wives allow their husbands to sin in an unchecked kind of way. Yes, it means that while you trace Jesus' pattern by not allowing his sin to generate sin in you as a wife, and while you are to trust the Father in the face of mistreatment, that doesn't mean that you are to condone your husband's sin and disobedience. This means that if your husband physically assaults you, in that moment he becomes a criminal. And that should be 
reported and the other institutions that you are called to submit to, the governing authorities that you are called to submit to, they should be called upon and drawn upon to play their role in that scenario. And so submitting to your husband doesn't mean you submit to anything he wants to do, especially if he's seeking to physically abuse you. And we'll talk about that more in a moment. So just listing that out there, just clarifying what submission doesn't mean. But there's a couple things, uh, a few important things I want you to note about the way this verse reads. The calling for wives to submit themselves to their husbands is cast in what's called the middle voice, meaning wives submit themselves to their husbands. Submission isn't something that husbands force upon their wives. Submission isn't something that husbands should insist from their wives. No, submission is something that you willfully do in love for your husband, in honor to your husband, in reverence to the God who calls you to submit yourself to your own husband. It's a voluntary, willful act, just like Jesus voluntarily went to the cross. But then this calling is also targeted. Gospel-believing wives are not called to submit to any and every man in society. This passage is not designed to protect some patriarchy in society as some have erroneously claimed it to do. The command, the calling here is targeted. Wives are not expected to submit to any and to every man in society. They are called to submit to their own husbands because they share a unique relationship to their own husband. Their own husband is the one person in the world they are to be more devoted to and to show more honor to than any other person on the planet. And then third, I want you to understand that this calling is not specified. Peter doesn't exactly say what the submission he's calling for should look like. And this is important for you to understand because the principle, because it pops up in other places in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 5, the principle of wives submitting to your own husbands, it does transcend cultural contexts. However, its application is to be fleshed out within the unique arrangement of a given marriage in a given time and in a given space on earth. So what honor and devotion looks like may differ depending on culture. It may differ differ depending on society. It may differ depending on the personalities and the gifts at work in the marriage. It may differ depending on the situation and the setting of the relationship. And so because of this, because submission, the calling here is not specified, I want to encourage gospel-believing wives to ask their husbands, just ask your husbands, what, what makes them feel honored by you? What makes them sense your devotion to them? And if the answer he gives doesn't call you away from being submitted to Jesus, then strive in that specified direction, even if it's hard even if it requires you to make personal sacrifices. Because your ultimate goal in the relationship is to commend the gospel to your husband. The biggest decision Kim and I made soon after getting married was to move from Birmingham, Alabama to New Orleans where I could pursue my PhD. At the time, Kim was on staff at a great church. And at first, when I started talking about New Orleans, she wasn't happy. Because moving would require her to give up a ministry that she loved and a ministry that she thrived in. And so Kim stepped back and she breathed deep and she decided to seek some counsel. So she went to a godly friend to talk to her about 
our situation. And, and her friend asked these wise questions. I want to share her words with you. She asked Kim, is this the opportunity you've been praying for to grow your marriage? If so, what do you want more? To stay in this ministerial job where you are known and affirmed or to affirm Andrew that you know and trust him, willing to move even if you can't yet see what lies ahead for you personally other than honoring Andrew's leadership. And those wise questions enabled Kim to process the arrangements of our marriage and our situation. And as she interplayed with texts like 1 Peter 3 and Ephesians chapter 5, and in the end, she chose to move to New Orleans. And she gladly chose to because she wanted to show me honor. She wanted to give me a sense of her devotion to me. And that's exactly what she did. I felt so honored by her. I felt so humbled by her willingness to move in that direction with me. It caused my love for her to grow. It caused my love for Jesus to grow because in that moment, she commended the gospel to me. In the moment, she modeled the type of willful submission that Jesus modeled every day of his life as he related to his heavenly father. Now, I know that not all husbands are servant leaders who are worthy of honor and respect, especially if you're married to a non-Christian who doesn't operate from these categories, which is why I want you to listen to what Peter says next, because, and keep in mind that most of the wives he's addressing in this passage are married to non-gospel-believing men, but he still wants them to commend the gospel. And they commend the gospel, one, through willful submission, but then second, they are to commend the gospel through wordless persuasion. Listen to what he says. Submit yourselves to your own husband so that even if some disobey the word, that is, even if your husband is not a believer or he's not obeying the gospel, I still want you to submit yourself to him so that they may be won over without word by the way their wives live when they observe your pure, reverent lives. He's saying, I want you to, to engage in wordless persuasion. Now, wordless persuasion doesn't mean that you never talk about Jesus. It doesn't mean that your husband doesn't know you're a Christian. Your husband should know that, and you should talk about Jesus. But what this verse reminds us of is that when you move into close proximity with, a, with another human being, and you can't get closer to another person than in the context of marriage, when you step into that close proximity with another person, you will find that your words aren't enough. That in the grit and grind of daily living, the measure of our words is more easily observed and the measure of our words are more easily seen as being far greater than perhaps our way of life. And so Peter is encouraging gospel-believing women, look, don't just be about words. Conduct yourself in such a way that is persuasive, that seeks to win your husband over because he sees your pure, reverent way of life. He's saying, don't just verbally express the gospel. Visually embody the gospel before the eyes of your husband. This is what he is saying. You know, St. Augustine's, a good example of this in church history is from St. Augustine's life. His mom, Monica, was a gospel-believing woman. She loved Jesus. In fact, she was the first Christian in their family. And she prayed for St. Augustine all of his life, hoping that he would come to believe the gospel. And one day, God answered that prayer. And he did exceedingly and abundantly more than Monica could ever ask or imagine with her husband, with, with her son in his salvation. But Monica was also married to a man who didn't believe the gospel, a man named 
Patricius. And she took this passage to heart and she was devoted to him all the days of their lives together. And before her husband died, uh, he had a long history of her pure and reverent way of life. And before he died, he actually came to faith in Jesus. Her wordless persuasion proved effective on him. And so St. Augustine would write in his spiritual autobiography known as the Confessions, he would make this statement. She, that is Monica, served her husband as her master and did all she could to win him for you, speaking to him of you by her conduct by which you made her beautiful. Finally, when her husband was at the end of his earthly span, she gained him for you. Now it took the full span of their life together before her husband was persuaded, but she never gave up. She never compromised her faith in Jesus. She honored her husband. She loved her husband. She prayed for her husband. She served him in ways that would commend the gospel to him. And she did that despite his merit or lack thereof. And before he died, he came to faith in Jesus. But even if he wasn't persuaded, even if he had not been convinced, Monica's days of living out her faith in her marriage would not have been wasted. For she would even then have been fulfilling her responsibility, her calling to contend or to commend the gospel to her husband. So even if he wasn't persuaded, her life and marriage would not have been wasted because she would have honored God by commending the gospel to her husband. And so wives, you are called to commend the gospel to your husbands through willful submission, through wordless persuasion, but then also you are to commend the gospel through an internal attraction. Through an internal attraction. Listen to what Peter says next. Don't let your beauty consist of outward things like elaborate hairstyles and wearing gold jewelry, but rather what is inside the heart, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's Sight. Now, he's not saying that if you fix your hair and wear makeup and nice clothes that you are in sin. But he is saying that those things don't ultimately matter. He is saying that those things don't last. That external attractiveness is temporary. External attractiveness will fade. This is what we're told in the wisdom of Proverbs, chapter 31, verse 30. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord will be praised. So what Peter is saying here is he's pressing priorities upon the church. He's saying you should be more concerned with internal attractiveness than your external attractiveness because your internal attraction is of great worth in the sight of God. He's saying Christ's likeness is far more beautiful to God than the clothes that you adorn yourself with. He's saying the makeup of your faith is far more beautiful to God than the makeup on your face. This is what he is saying. But few people actually believe this in our Instagram-filtered society because we spend far more time working to present ourselves as externally attractive than we do cultivating character and virtue, that which God finds attractive and beautiful. And over time, we wind up with a culture with few people for our kids to look up to. Yeah, there are lots of externally attractive people, but there are very few internally attractive people. And so young girls grow up feeling the pressure to look a certain way, be a certain shape, 
And all the while, those of us who commend the gospel to people, we want them to understand that the gospel frees us from the pressure of looking a certain way. It frees us from their pressure. If only the gospel would take root, deep root in their souls to produce the fruit of internal attractiveness. If only, if only we were drawn towards that more than the external attractiveness of our, of our world. This is the direction I pray for my daughters so that if they do one day become wives, they would commend the gospel to their potential future husbands by being internally attractive, that they would, be, that they would give far more time and attention to their character and to their virtue than to their hairstyle and their makeup. I pray the same for my wife, that she would continue in that direction. And I find my wife externally beautiful, externally attractive, but her external beauty pales in comparison to the internal beauty and the internal attractiveness of her character and her virtue that she has cultivated over the span of her days with Jesus. And so here we are being reminded, or wives are being reminded to prioritize their internal attractiveness. And, And Peter goes on, and he refers to holy women in the past who put their hope in God as examples for wives to follow. You know, having examples of godly, gospel-commending wives to look up to is, is vital. And so I would encourage you, women, not to allow our culture's drunken-minded assessment of previous generations to deceive you into thinking you can't learn from gospel-commending women and wives of previous generations. This is what Peter's doing, saying, look, remember that there are lots of women in the past that you can look to as examples. And then he names one, Sarah. And naming Sarah is really helpful because she was married to Abraham, who's a big figure in the Old Testament. He's a big figure in the whole Bible. But Abraham wasn't a perfect man. And despite the songs that we sing, like Father Abraham, Abraham did not lead well on multiple occasions. There are many times when he was disobedient, many times when he did not trust in the promises God had made to him. There were moments when he led his family to places they should have never gone, and he made decisions that put his family in unnecessary danger. But yet Sarah Sarah stayed with him. She honored his leadership. She committed herself to God by relating to him in that way. Yeah, there are moments when she shared her opinions with Abraham. And there are moments when they disagreed about how things were going to play out. But in the end, she exercised a calm trust in God. And she believed God was going to take care of her, even if her husband wasn't at that moment. And this is what this gentle and quiet spirit is all about. It's about having a calm trust in the sovereign grace of God. It's about trusting him, even when you're having a hard time trusting your husband. It's believing that God is going to take care of you no matter where you end up in this world. Yes, your husband may make a dumb decision. He may act like a fool and and put you in precarious circumstances, financially, mentally, emotionally, maybe even physically. But God and his sovereign grace can still be trusted. You can demonstrate a calm trust in the goodness of your God to take care of you because he knows where you are. He knows when you are. He knows how you are in this world. And he knows all of that about your husband too. So you can rest assured that God's got you even when your husband doesn't seem to have you. And so Peter tells them to look to Sarah as an example, and I would encourage you wives to look 
to women and wives of previous generations as examples. Find those who commended the gospel and draw from them inspiration and help as you seek to do the same in your marriage. Now, let me make one final thing clear before turning my attention to the husbands, as Peter does in this passage. This is a very important clarification, and I want to be explicit about it. Wives, Jesus' example of being physically abused on the cross does not necessitate you enduring physical abuse from your husband. What Jesus did on the cross was utterly unique. His death on the cross atoned for the sins of all of his people. Your potential death at the hands of your husband would never do that. And so at the end of verse six, Peter says, do what is good and do not fear any intimidation. Now, doing what is good and not fearing any intimidation in such a circumstance means to seek help. It means do not be silent. It means do not shield your husband's sin from other God-ordained, God-sanctioned institutions in our society. These same authorities that we are also called to submit to as followers of Jesus, lean into the laws of the land that are designed to protect you from that type of situation and protect you from that type of harm. And as you are not intimidated and as intimidated, as you allow the gospel to give you the courage to come forward and to step up and to seek help, understand that not only will you commend the gospel to your husband who might recognize that he is in sin, that he is in wrong, that he is not right, that he needs forgiveness and salvation from God, but you will also commend the gospel to other wives and other husbands even in certain situations where, who may be experiencing the same thing commending the gospel to them, saying, look, the gospel gives you courage to step up and to step out and to come forward so that you do not endure physical abuse unnecessarily. And you can start by calling the National Domestic Violence Hotline. The number's provided on the screen, 1-800-799-7233. And you can then let leaders in our church, or if you're listening from another setting, let leaders in your church know what's happening so they can support you and help you and encourage you through that difficult circumstance. Now in verse seven, Peter turns his attention to husbands and he tells them how they can commend the gospel to their wives. He says, husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with a weaker partner, showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Now, Three ways, husbands, you can commend the gospel to your wives. One, you can do so by using your power to serve your wives. Serve your wife. Husbands, use your power to serve your wives. Now, this is another troublesome phrase. First, there was the word submit. Now, there's this reference to wives as being a weaker partner. Now, I should have given this text to Mark to preach. I'm just kidding. This This passage is as much of God's word as John 3, 16 is. And so let's be sober-minded and seek understanding. Let's don't be drunken-minded and reactionary. Referring to the wife as a weaker vessel speaks to two things. First, there is a physiological reality. The physically strongest man will always be stronger than the physically strongest woman. Now, I know there are women who are physically stronger than me. But generally speaking, women are physically weaker than men. 
And this was an important thing for Peter to point out, given the type of work that was needed to be done in the first century and the type of provision husbands were called upon to give their wives. In the Greco-Roman world, families were provided for through back-breaking manual labor, and husbands were depended upon to use their power to serve their wives and to serve their families. They had to do the necessary work to provide for them and to protect them and to care for them. And so there's a physiological reason why Peter would make this statement, but this reference, I think, most importantly refers to a, to a cultural reality, a social reality. In the Greco-Roman world, wives did not hold much power in their marriage. Power belonged to the husband. Marriage laws favored the husband. Men could have affairs without consequences, while wives could not. In fact, wives could be put to death for it if they had done so, but they had little power to divorce their husbands in a justified sort of way. But men could divorce their wives for any reason whatsoever. If they woke up on the wrong side of the bed and was mad about breakfast, they could divorce their wives. No consequence. If they were frustrated by their wives' external beauty that was fading, they could divorce their wives. No consequences. They held the power in the relationship. And so Peter's reminding husbands of that social, cultural reality. And he's saying, look, I want you to be aware of this and I want you to be sensitive to them so that you learn to use your power to serve your wife, to dispel her fears, to help her find security in a relationship, not thinking that you were going to bail on her or abandon her for trivial reasons or for any reason whatsoever. And so use your power to serve your bride. Leverage the advantages you have as a husband in the Greco-Roman world for her good. And when husbands are, are using their power to serve, they are modeling Christ's likeness in an incredible way. Jesus, who used his power to serve us, he used his power to save us, he used his power to redeem us. Peter's saying, husbands, I want, you to, I want you to do the same thing. Use your power to serve. Second, husbands, commend the gospel by honoring your wives as partners. Now, on one hand, this word, this honoring your wives as partners, on one hand, it was designed to kind of humble the husband a little bit in the Greco-Roman world, but it was also designed to elevate the wife in the marriage. This statement was designed to remind the gospel-believing husband that their wife wasn't inferior to them in any way. This statement was designed to to convince the husband that they were not inherently more valuable to God than their wife. Now, that may seem obvious to some of, some of you today, but it wasn't obvious to Peter's first readers that wives and women were co-heirs of the grace of life. This is why it's repeated in different ways all throughout the New Testament. This is why Paul would say what he says in Galatians when he says, there is neither male nor female in Christ. We are all share an equal status in Christ. And we are all equal recipients of our inheritance of the life that we've been given by Jesus. And this is another incredibly dignifying statement for wives and women because in antiquity, elder sons were the unrivaled heirs to their family's wealth and estate. But in the church, in the family of God, there's a new reality at play. A new reality that says that we are all recipients, equal recipients of our heavenly family's wealth and estate. So husbands, you commend the gospel to your wife when you treat them as a partner, as a partner in life and as a partner in ministry. 
Your wife is not subservient to you in any way, shape, or form. So love and serve your wife in, a, in order to empower her life, in order to empower her ministry, in order to help her f- make the most of the life that she has with God in the world that is, even when the world that is is struggling when it comes to recognizing these type of dynamics between husbands and wives. But then third, husbands, you are called to commend the gospel by leading out in worship. Commend the gospel by leading out in worship. There's a warning at the end of verse seven. As he says, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with a weaker partner, showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life. But then he says, so that your prayers will not be hindered. He's saying, husbands, you are the spiritual thermostat of your marriage. You are the spiritual thermostat of your household. The spiritual vitality of your life, of your marriage, of your home depends upon whether or not you are stepping up and leading out in worship. And you do this by embracing who you are called to be as the servant leader of your marriage and the servant leader of your household. Now, this passage is unique in that Peter spends more time addressing wives than husbands, and there are cultural, contextual reasons for that. But when Paul talks about marriage, he spends more time dealing with husbands, and I want to share what he says with you. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, Husbands, you were called to love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot and wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. He's saying, husbands, commend the gospel to your wives by using your power to serve, by honoring your wife as a partner, and by leading out in worship. Love and serve your wife in such a way that leads her to grow in her faith, to mature in her faith. Love her and serve her in a way that causes her to love and to serve to love Jesus more and to serve Jesus more faithfully. Lead out in worship so that the gospel is commended in your marriage from you to her, from her to you, and then together to the watching world around you. Leading out in worship. Now, husbands, understand that these commendations, the ways in which you were to commend the gospel are interdependent. When one falls, the other does as well. And I'm sure if you're like me, you're probably more attuned to the areas in which you have dropped the ball than when you have carried it well. And some of you may be struck with a sense of conviction, maybe even guilt over how poorly you've been leading out in worship, how poorly you've been honoring your wife as a partner, how poorly you've been using your power to serve. You've been using your power for other reasons. And and if that's the case, I I want to challenge you just as I've been challenged this past week as I've been confronted with these dynamics in my own marriage and I've been brought to the point where I've needed to confess sin and repent of sin and return to the rhythms of life that I am called to lead out on as as a gospel-believing husband. And so I want to encourage you with the fact that if you've dropped the ball on any of these fronts, it is not too late for you to pick it up again. That God's grace is sufficient for you There is more grace in Christ than there is sin in you. 
And upon your repentance and returning to thinking better about who you are to be as a husband to your bride, upon your repentance, you will experience a refreshed, a renewed sense of intimacy with God. And you will experience a refreshed sense of power from God to be who you were called to be and to do what you were called to do. It's not too late. Don't give up. Don't bail out. Press in in repentance and humility and find God's grace being sufficient for you to commend the gospel to your bride. And so whether you are a wife or a husband, or maybe you are an aspiring wife or an aspiring husband, I want to encourage you to grow in commending the gospel. If you're not yet married, learn how to commend the gospel from those who are doing it well. Seek mentors. Seek someone to disciple you as you move towards that day. If you are a wife or a husband and maybe you're having a hard time commending the gospel to others, seek examples, not only through church history or maybe your own family lineage, but seek examples even within the church and find couples who are doing that well to be mentored by, to be discipled by, so that you can grow in commending the gospel to one another. Because my prayer for our church is that we would have marriages filled with husbands commending the gospel to their wives, filled with wives commending the gospel to their husbands. And as husbands and wives are commending the gospel to one another, they will be commending the gospel to the watching world. And we will be giving this world tastes of the world that is to come as they see submission and service, love and humility, honor and respect as they see worship taking place in the lives of the husbands and the wives and the marriages of our faith family. And so let's pray in that direction. Heavenly Father, thank you for the grace that you have given us in Christ. God, we trust that there is more grace in you than there is sin in us. And so if any husband or wife right now is feeling defeated, because maybe they found that the standard of this text is too high for them to carry and maybe they've dropped the ball in their marriages. I pray that your grace would minister to them in this moment, that your Holy Spirit would assure them that you are still for them. And I pray that their repentance and that their return to what you're calling them to do in the scriptures, I pray that that would be met with a refreshed sense of your intimacy, of your affections, of your love, of your nearness. I pray that it would also be met by a renewed sense of your power for them and that you would enable them to be the types of husbands and the types of wives that commend the gospel to their spouses. Father, we need your Holy Spirit. We need your gospel to be all that you've called us to be and to do all that you've called us to do. So would you give us yourself, give us your spirit, give us all that we need by grace for your glory, for our good, and for the good of those around us, all in Jesus' name we pray.